Today on Legalese, we have the second video in my series on Chevron Deference. Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome back once again to Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new uh, to this program, let me bid a special welcome to you. This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, you can find this show in a number of different formats by heading over to my webpage, which is legaleasepodcast.com. Uh, you can find the audio version, the video version, uh, as well as find out more about me, uh, check out my blog, my social media, uh, buy a copy of my book, all kinds of cool stuff you can do over there. And if you dig the show and you want to get notified when I have uh, new content out, if you head over to legalese that will take you over to my Substack newsletter. And there you can sign up uh, to get notifications whenever I release. Uh, you can do it whether I release any new content or if you're someone who just tends to like my articles or just tends to like the videos I do, you can sign up for uh, any part of it or all of it. Uh, so that is LegallyShow.com. So for anyone who has been paying close enough attention to have noticed this, uh, part two of my video on Chevron deference was, of course, supposed to come out the day after part one. That's what I said right in that video. It's now been well over a week. And so let me explain. The reason it has taken me so long to get this second part out is because I've really been reworking all the material that I started with. And essentially, uh, this isn't going to be the second video in a two-part series on Chevron. This is going to be a jumping off point for a future series about the true history of administrative law itself. Now, this is a topic that I first became interested in last year as I began to write my book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand, because I was really surprised at how much of the history of the implied powers doctrine rested on agency law, which is the source of power uh, whose uh, latest manifestation is the modern administrative state that we will be talking about today. So after today's video, my series uh, on administrative law, it probably won't be in every single week. I'll probably uh, space it out with other episodes about different stuff in between. But as I start to put those episodes out, uh, it is going to draw on the research of scholars such as Gary Lawson and Philip Hamburger and Christopher Walker that explores the British and civil law antecedents of modern American administrative law. I will be showing that contemporary administrative law is really just the most recent manifestation of a recurring problem, and that is the problem of power. It is about its temptations, its dangers, and its tendency to corrupt. So administrative law, far from being a distinctive product of modernity, is thus really more uh, a contemporary expression 
of the old tendency towards absolute power, towards consolidated power outside and above the law. And it represents precisely the forms of government action that constitutionalism, both in general and specifically as manifested in the United States Constitution, precisely the thing that that was meant to prevent. So accordingly, virtually every aspect of the modern administrative state is a direct challenge to the Constitution. Now, if learning more about that sounds interesting to you, uh, then definitely subscribe to my YouTube channel here and go sign up for that uh, newsletter at LegallyShow.com. Of course, for today, though, we have to finish my talk about the upcoming Loper-Bright case and the future of Chevron deference. And specifically today, we are going to be going over an article from Vox that I believe is representative of the claims against an overturn of Chevron deference that we see largely coming nowadays from the progressive left. Now, their perception of this case is just ridiculous. And Vox, as you will see, demonstrates they simply do not understand anything about the case we're talking about, or Chevron deference, or how a court functions, or even the meaning of a basic term like democracy. So the article that we are going to be reading is called A New Supreme Court Case Seeks to Make the Nine Justices Even More Powerful. You will find a link to that article, as well as to all the articles uh, and documents and other source material that I cite in a particular episode on the show notes page. And you can find that either down in this video's description, or you can head over to uh, the Substack newsletter page, LegallyShow.com, and I have a section there specifically called Show Notes that is the collection of show notes for every episode. So, Ian Milheiser, the Vox correspondent who authored this article, uh, starts it by saying that the Supreme Court has announced that it will reconsider one of its modern foundational decisions, Chevron versus Natural Resource Defense Council, which for decades has defined the balance of power between the executive branch and federal judiciary. Now, this is the kind of uninformed understanding of federal power that I might have expected from some politico fresh out of college with a degree in Latinx studies, but not from someone like this author who has a law degree who has published books on the Supreme Court, because he should know the only authority to grant power to the three branches of government is that authority which comes through the will of the people of the several states as expressed in our written constitution. The constitution is the only lawful source of authority as to what powers are delegated to the federal government. Now the Vox article will go on. They say Chevron established that courts ordinarily should defer to policy-making decisions made by federal agencies, such as the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of Labor, for two reasons. One, agencies typically have far greater expertise in the area they are regulating than judges and thus are more likely to make wise policy decisions. And while federal judges are largely immune from democratic accountability, Federal agencies typically are run by officials who serve at the pleasure of an elected president 
and thus have far more democratic legitimacy to make policy choices. So there are two different points here, and both of them are equally erroneous, but for very different reasons. First, these reasons are contradictory and cannot both be true at the same time. The first is that to write laws and adjudicate issues, it makes more sense to give these powers to an administrative agency who can hire people with expertise in the subject being legislated and or adjudicated, uh, more so than legislators or judges, respectively. The second argument is, is that administrative agencies are more democratic, and democratic means better. Now, the reason he doesn't bother to provide any kind of uh, evidence or citation uh, of this from the Chevron uh, decision that he is talking about uh, is almost certainly because that evidence doesn't exist. And this holds equally true for uh, both of his claims, both about expertise and about democratic deference. You simply cannot say something that doesn't exist. On the other hand, we can identify the real reason uh, that the court rested on the claim they did in uh, Chevron, and that is found right in the text of the decision itself. The court found that with regard to judicial review of an agency's construction of statute which it administers, if Congress has not directly spoken to the precise question at issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. Now, what I find funny about this is that Vox doesn't seem to recognize the delicious hypocrisy of condemning the Supreme Court's ability to provide judicial oversight by citing a doctrine whose very existence is a product of the Supreme Court providing judicial oversight. Their actual position here is that the Supreme Court should defer to the Supreme Court when the court makes a decision that the left find politically agreeable, but that the court should defer to not the court when the court is likely to make a decision that the left finds something politically disagreeable because, you know, something, something, democracy, something, something. Now, his article goes on to say that, nevertheless, next term, the court will hear a case, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo, which explicitly asked whether the court should overrule Chevron. He says that in the reasonably likely event that the court does overrule uh, this seminal decision, that would mean the death of one of the most cited decisions in the federal judiciary. According to the legal database LexisNexis, Federal courts have cited Chevron in over 19,000 different judicial opinions. Now, here, of course, we see Vox making uh, the common mistake that we talked about in the last video that many people make. And that is to uh, present the Loper Bright QP as though the only possible depth of this case will simply be should the court overrule Chevron. However, if you have seen my last video on this topic, 
And if you haven't, you really should go and watch it. It would be very helpful to understand that underpinning before watching the rest of this. Uh, I'll have a link to that video in the description. But for now, if you recall the last video, we saw that the question presented in Loper was actually much more subtle and nuanced than this, and it actually provided an alternative option. So to quickly revisit it, uh, this limited grant for review that the courts gave in the Loper QP. The question presented the court has agreed to hear is, quote, whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least carefully clarify, at least clarify, that statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. Now, I don't especially fault Vox for uh, that error of sort of missing the whole message of the QP. Uh, really, that was a common mistake that we saw all across corporate media. Uh, but I cannot say the same thing for the second part of that paragraph. Because in it, Vox has now provided us a third explanation for why the court shouldn't even consider overruling Chevron deference. And just like uh, the last two reasons he gave, this one contradicts the others. And this third reason rests on the arguments of time and frequency translating into legitimacy. Once again, he failed to provide any citation in Chevron where the judgment of the court suggests time and frequency are indicators of the legitimacy of adjudication. Now, when I say time and frequency, what I am referring to is how long the doctrine has existed and how often is it evoked as a matter of stare decisis. Now, we will be returning to the problem with this claim a little later in the video, but for now, I wanted to point out the most obvious issue here, which is, if Loper is an illegitimate usurpation of power by the court, surely Chevron must be seen in the same light. Chevron was a policy that wasn't created in a vacuum. It too replaced a pre-existing standard of judicial deference and oversight, and once again, we see that he is couching his personal preferences in these sort of flimsy, pseudo-objective reasonings. But if Loper is an unprecedented usurpation of power by the judiciary, any consistently ethical argument would reach the very same conclusion in regards to Chevron. Now from here, the article goes on to make an incredible claim. He says, indeed, Chevron is arguably as important to the development of federal administrative law as Brown versus Board of Education was important to the development of the law of racial equality. Now, what he is employing here is something of a trade secret of lawyers and legal scholars when dealing with matters of constitutional law. When you don't have strong evidence to back up your position, uh, you try to reinforce your argument by using a rhetorical device 
that is disguised to look like a legal argument. Uh, and specifically, what he is doing here uh, is he is doing his best to incorporate his case he is discussing with one of the so-called canonical cases. These are the Supreme Court cases that everyone has heard of and have a favorable opinion of. And you do whatever you do to tie the case you are talking about to one of these canonical cases. So, again, as he said, Chevron is arguably as important to the development of federal administrative law as Brown v. Board of Education was important to the development of racial equality. And that actually sounds uh, good, doesn't it? Like, it even almost sounds like a legally coherent argument if you don't stop and consider what is actually being said. Which is why we are going to stop and consider what is being said. Because the way this guy employs this trick, it's really something like a uh, poor man's legalese. Just naming a case that everyone will politely nod their heads in agreement to. Now, the problem is this works both ways and is every bit as easy to turn it around and use one of the anti-canonical cases to show how shallow and pedantic this argument really is. Because an argument equally relevant to the claim that Chevron is to administrative law uh, what Brown was to racial equality would be to say something like uh, Chevron is to administrative law what Dred Scott was to developing a system of laws in which a black man has no rights in which a white man is bound to respect. I suppose we could also say that Chevron is to administrative law what Buck v. Bell was to progressive eugenicists who wanted to sterilize retards. You could even say that Chevron was to administrative law what Korematsu was to locking up American citizens indefinitely without charge based on the fact that they kind of looked like those dicks that bombed Pearl Harbor. Now, while that rhetorical device he just used was a weak attempt uh, to trick you into his non-argument that sounds like an argument, their next cheap trick is actually somewhat clever and maybe not even necessarily immediately obvious why the claim is equally frivolous. So he goes on to say, uh, and a decision overruling Chevron would also make the United States far less democratic. One of the Supreme Court's most consequential projects in the last several years, a project that took off after former President Donald Trump remade the court with three appointees, has been concentrating authority over federal policymaking within the court itself. Now, this project necessarily shifts the power away from the other two branches whose leaders are elected and to the unelected members of the federal, ju federal judiciary. Now he goes on to say that the court has already taken a major leap forward in overruling Chevron. Although it's still technically good law, many of its recent decisions regarding federal agencies' power to set policy would turn 
on the so-called major questions doctrine. Now, he says that that doctrine is a judicially created doctrine that traces back to a 2000 Supreme Court decision, but became a central force in the court's administrative law decisions during the Biden years, and this doctrine effectively permits five justices to veto any action by a federal agency that touches upon a matter that those five justices deem to be a matter of vast economical and political significance. But, while this major questions doctrine gives the court a veto power over executive branch policy, making decisions it deems too significant, Chevron has largely prevented lower court judges from micromanaging this sort of routine and often highly technical regulatory decision that the government makes all the time. Questions like, how much nitrogen may be discharged by a wastewater treatment plant, or how to conduct hearings that determine which coal mine workers are entitled to certain disability benefits. Without Chevron, every one of these complicated questions could become the subject of protracted litigation presided over by judges who know little or nothing about nitrogen pollution, black lung disease, I think I'm getting the black lung, Bob. It's not very well ventilated down there. For Christ's sake, Derek, you've been down there one day. Or any of the other myriad areas where specialized agencies have considerable expertise. Now, the argument that more democratic means objectively better is just absurd. And as we will be exploring a little later in this video, his claims about the court ruling on technical issues they couldn't understand is actually a complete straw man, and he is either intentionally lying and should be ashamed of himself, or he hasn't bothered to read any of the relevant case briefs and enabling statutes that this administrative system is predicated on, because, in truth, they are diametrically opposed to the very claim that he is making, and he should thus, therefore, be ashamed of himself. Now, first things first, our government is only as democratic as the Constitution made it, no more. The court was not meant to be a democratic body. But, to the extent that these people want to improperly refer to our system and structure of government as being a democracy, I mean, if you want to misapply that term, I won't stop you. Uh, after all, I have always been a strong believer in the wisdom of Napoleon's dictum that you never interrupt your enemy while they are busy making a mistake. But the federal courts are a foundational part of our system that you call a democracy. So if you want to mislabel our constitutional government as a proper noun democracy, rather than accurately applying that term in an actionable manner to those aspects of our government that were designed to employ a democratic process, fine. But just understand that that is what you are doing and understand that you are now the one attacking a foundational necessary pillar of the democratic government you seem to believe you are defending. The role of the federal judiciary is to interpret and apply the meaning of the law without regard to political whims and majoritarian mob rule. The court is also an indispensable part of maintaining the checks and balances of a limited constitutional government. 
This means the court would be derelict in their constitutional duties if they didn't step in and limit the power and scope of the other two branches of government when the court believes that something they are doing is in direct contravention of their constitutional authority. That is an exercise of delegated authority, not a usurpation. Now, all this goes to show that you really can't trust the corporate media whenever they are describing cases that have gone before the Supreme Court. If you want more examples of what I mean by this, you can go and check out my video on the most recent Chevron case. This was West Virginia v. EPA. I did a video called Supreme Court Roundup Chevron Deference Edition. Uh, I will link to that on the show notes page and down in the video description. But I couldn't even keep track of the countless examples of reporting from the corporate media that were all pushing an identical narrative back then. And the narrative goes something like this. Let's see if this sounds familiar. The major questions doctrine was some rule the court simply made up out of nothing in 2000. That this doctrine is now being aggressively applied for the first time during the Biden administration. Uh, and this is because this doctrine is a result of Donald Trump's three evil and scheming, possibly racist, definitely far-right justices on the court who are pushing this doctrine through as part of their far-right extremist agenda that they know will cause many people to die and will likely completely collapse our democratic system of government, which is, of course, what the far-right is aiming to achieve. Now, that does make perfect sense when you stop and consider the fact that in 1986, Stephen Breyer, at the time a judge on the First Circuit, endorsed a version of the Major Questions Doctrine in a law review article published just two years after the Chevron decision came down. Incidentally, Breyer's article also coined the phrase Major Questions Doctrine. Now, I realize it might be a bit confusing since uh, it might sound like what I am describing is a doctrine that one of the most progressive justices to ever sit on the court named, defined, and advocated for along very progressive grounds all the way back in the mid-1980s. But the only reason it sounds that way is because that's exactly what happened. And it is precisely this kind of truncated view of history uh, that is uh, given to us in articles such as these, where the person just so happens to start their narrative at some artificial starting point because that particular beginning is the most advantageous personal choice that he could make. So what the major questions doctrine says is that when the ambiguity of a statute implicates a major question of significant economic or political importance, we are not going to assume that it was Congress's intention to leave that question up entirely to the administrative agency. This is not the court taking control of saying what that issue means. The court is simply saying that Congress hasn't clarified what that issue means. And if you want to exercise that power, you need to go back to Congress and ask them for it. So 
So let's talk about the real history of administrative law. Uh, for starters, when do courts review agency actions? Well, to understand this, we need to go back much further than to 2000 or even the 1984, the two places where he says we need to go back to. Actually, to understand, the best place to go back to would actually be a 1946 statute known as the Administrative Procedure Act. Because in the second half of the Administrative Procedure Act, they deal with the issue of judicial review. In other words, the Administrative Procedure Act sets the default rules for how federal courts should review agency actions. So the agency acts, there is a final agency action, and the Administrative Procedure Act then says that in almost all circumstances, if you are not happy with what the agency did to you, you can go to federal court and seek review. Now, federal courts don't re-review everything federal agencies do. It's not as if they get to rejudge what happened the way an immigration court would. Instead, what the Administrative Procedure Act does is it provides for an agency-friendly deferential review of those agency actions. For instance, the Administrative Procedure Act says that you should defer to the agency so long as it didn't act arbitrarily or didn't abuse its discretion. And this is the standard that we would go back to if Chevron were repealed. You may be noticing that this standard sounds a hell of a lot like Chevron already. It wouldn't be that much of a difference. Now, the Administrative Procedures Act uh, does not allow, in most circumstances, for the court to reweigh evidence, to hear witnesses, or the like. Instead, it is reviewing the administrative record and reviewing it for reasonableness with a very heavy deferential standard. And that is an important compromise that was reached in the Administrative Procedure Act. When you think of judicial review of agency actions, it's helpful to divide the world of judicial review into two separate sorts, or two separate buckets, I guess you could say. On the one hand, courts review how agencies interpret statutes and govern the agency. Those are reviews of legal questions. And on the other hand, the courts also review how agencies act. These are factual findings. The policy decisions they make uh, and these factual findings as opposed to legal questions are two different types of judicial review. Now, the reason we distinguish between questions of law and everything else agencies do when we think about judicial review goes all the way back to Marbury versus Madison. Uh, this is, of course, the case where uh, the Chief Justice John Marshall famously said that it is the emphatic duty of the courts to say what the law is. In other words, when we usually think about interpreting laws, the primary interpreter is the court, not the agency, not the president, not Congress, not the public. Courts really should play that primary role in interpreting and saying what a law is. And so, when we're thinking about how to review agency actions of any action, for that matter, we might view factual determinations, policy judgments in one category, but when it comes to the law, it plays a special role for courts to be the ultimate adjudicator of what the law means. 
Now, the purpose of federal agencies is to help implement laws. Congress identifies these issues that are of importance that they want to have fixed, something like seatbelts or air pollution. Federal agencies are the ones uh, that are there to address these issues. So, when you are thinking about what federal agencies do, you can actually divide their duties up into sort of three main areas or, or sort of three buckets of uh, particular power. So, they make rules and regulations most of the time through comment rule making. This is where they adjudicate disputes over government benefits, over licensing and permitting, and they bring enforcement actions to enforce the law that Congress has given us. And so, you have these tensions between agencies as an Article I institution that are making laws, as an Article II institution that are actually enforcing those laws, and as an Article III institution in that they are actually judging and adjudicating disputes. Now, the fact is that most of the law making, most of the laws that we have today are not made by Congress. They are made by federal agencies. And this creates an obvious uncomfortable tension because federal agencies aren't technically a part of Congress. They are not part of Article 1. They don't legislate. And yet, the vast majority of laws that are made today are made by these federal agencies and not by Congress. Just for example, in the two-year period between 2015 and 2016, federal agencies promulgated over 7,000 final rules compared to Congress that passed just a little over 300 public laws in the same time. So the vast majority of restrictions of laws that we face today as an everyday citizen, we find we get from federal agencies and not from Congress. We're facing new problems and new challenges when you have unelected bureaucrats doing most of the lawmaking that you have, and the political branches, Congress in particular, reaping the rewards of these administrative lawmaking procedures. Because Congress gets to take the credit when the agencies do something good, but they are not accountable when the agencies do something bad. They just blame the agencies for the failure. This creates a system where democratic checks simply do not play their proper role. So what about his two primary arguments in favor of administrative agencies? That agencies are people with a technical expertise in dealing with whatever it is that the agency they work for is in charge of regulating. For example, it's better to have an EPA, they would say, to hire people with an expertise in environmental studies that most members of Congress simply won't have. Plus, the idea that the administrative state we have right now, uh, as he claims, is more democratic than what would exist if we repealed Chevron, and that assigning powers should be done through some kind of process of democratic stratification, in which the most democratic option is, ipso facto, the best option. Now, as for that first part, the idea of necessity born of expertise to possibly be valid requires us answering two fundamental questions. 
And the first one of those would be, what do you view Congress's job as being? And exactly how do you believe administrative agencies go about their job? This is because if Congress was worried that it could not do its job simply on its own, it could enlist administrative agencies as guides. It can have administrative agencies promulgate rules as suggestions for legislation. And in fact, Congress could even change its own rules of procedure to allow a simple up or down vote on these agency proposals. Now, would that slow down somewhat the flow of law coming from the government? Well, probably. But would it prevent Congress from, in the words of the Supreme Court themselves, doing their job? Well, that all depends on what you view Congress's job as being. If you view Congress's job as legislating in accordance with constitutional norms, Congress could do its job just fine. However, if you view Congress's job as producing whatever somebody thinks is a good idea, regardless of what the Constitution prescribes, then yeah, I suppose there's maybe a good chance that there would be a necessity for delegation. Now, I, I it completely baffles me why that is considered a credible account of what Congress's job is, but that's just me. Now, the second argument that we would have to consider uh, is that uh, are agencies likely to be better at what they are doing than Congress would be? And this may depend on what it is that you think the agencies are doing. If what you think agencies are doing is applying technocratic expertise to questions of practical science and applications that have objectively right and wrong answers, then yeah, there's probably a chance that an administrative agency would be more likely to get that right than a politician in Congress. However, if you have a more realistic view of what agencies do, and you believe a good portion of what they do is really just dressed up in the mantle of science and expertise, but is really nothing more than simple uh, decision-making based on personal values and policy, then it is not at all obvious why the advanced degrees uh, and expertise would count for so much in terms of figuring out what is right and what is wrong. So this all really depends upon what you imagine these agencies to be doing. And I think it's clear that in nearly every circumstance, agencies are adhering far more to the latter than the former. Then finally, how is it that agencies might be more democratically responsive? Now, I, I'm not, I will admit, an expert on democratic theory. That's really more of a question for a political scientist. But what I would observe is that the Constitution of the United States does not instantiate any particular uh, academically pure theory of democratic responsiveness. It instantiates a very specific, historically concrete model of democratic responsiveness. That is to say, it prescribes a certain set of mechanisms and a certain set of instructions, and that count as what the Constitution considers to be democratic responsiveness. Now, could there be in academic theory that in some way was abstractly better than the theory put forward in our Constitution? Yeah, sure, I guess. Uh, could be. 
Now, there are all sorts of reasons why one might prefer various academic models to the Constitution, but let's just be aware that that's what the argument involves. What this argument really wants is for our government to become a progressive parliamentary democracy, not unlike the one envisioned by Woodrow Wilson when he was president. That is to say, a system in which the real powers come from the executive in the form of a prime minister for whom the legislative and judicial aspects of government are not so much separate entities, uh, they exist largely to act as a rubber stamp of approval to the decisions made by the executive. Now, to me, that model seems drastically inferior to what we have. And I'm not just talking about some idealized version of what we have by what is spelled out in our Constitution. I mean our government as it is right now, flaws and all. Now, people are free to disagree, but that is how I see it. All right, well, before we end this video, uh, you may have noticed I just mentioned Woodrow Wilson, which means we are going to have to go out playing the best game of presidential trivia about the worst president in history, Woodrow Wilson. That's right, it's time once again for Woodrow Wilson. What a dick, right? Now, the rules of the game are very simple. I will list three reasons why Woodrow Wilson was a dick. Two of them are real, one is a false fact of my own making, and the first person to correctly guess the right answer in this video's comment section gets their comment pinned to the video and gets a copy of the hilarious film Weekend at Woody's, all about that time when Wilson's wife hid from the entire country the fact that her husband had had a stroke and was completely incapacitated for about 18 months at a time when he was president. So, let's move to our first category, Wilson the Racist. Oh, did I just do a racism? All right, Wilson the Racist. Now, this, there is an idea we have that after the Civil War, but before the Civil Rights era, that things in this country were always consistently bad for blacks in America. But the fact is, that's not true. It wasn't a consistent thing. Things would get better after the Civil War, and there were attempts at integration, especially among the radical Republicans in the North, and in the federal government itself. However, it was Woodrow Wilson who, in one of the very first things he did when he got into the White House, was to say that the federal government would be reintroducing segregation. So, many of the black citizens who had jobs, who were educated, and who were doing very hard work, found themselves being demoted or even fired without cause. 
Wilson regarded it out as outrageous that, for example, a white woman would have to share a desk with a black man at work. And this went way further than that. We're talking about things like separate bathrooms by race, separate cafeterias, and screened-off workplaces. We even have a famous incident involving one black employee who was working for the federal government, uh, but because he was a clerk who, due to the nature of his work, could not be completely segregated from his uh, co-workers, he had to have a cage built around him in order to actually keep him separate from other workers. They kept him in a literal locked cage during business hours. And by the way, we are not talking about here views that Wilson had held a long time ago and then grew out of while he was in office or something. These policies that he implemented were indicative of things that he had always believed long before he was president and right up until the day he died uh, of that stroke a couple years later. All right, our next category, Wilson the Tyrant. Now, something I discussed in one of my favorite past episodes that I called uh, Sedition, Sedition and American Virtue uh, was one where we dealt with the fact that in 1916, Woodrow Wilson barely won re-election, running on a campaign slogan, he kept us out of war. I'm talking about World War One. Now, almost immediately after being re-elected, he moved with great haste to get us into the war he had just campaigned to keep us out of. And when the anti-war progressives who had voted for him called him out on his deceit, what he did was he got laws passed that allowed him to have those opponents, who in many instances were actually his own supporters, thrown into jail for their criticism of Wilson for shitting all over the First Amendment the moment they began calling for or calling him out on this disgusting duplicity. Now, certainly the most famous example of this was Eugene Debs, who was a uh, political opponent of Wilson, uh, and in fact, because Wilson had locked him up, Debs had to run for election for president from his jail cell, where he was locked up by Wilson for criticizing Wilson's administration. All right, and on to the third topic today, Wilson the Terminator. Now, Woodrow Wilson may be best known for his recognition as a historian, an educator, and president of the United States. What, what many people don't know is that Wilson was actually a Terminator robot created by Skynet and sent back in time to assassinate Sarah Connor while she was pregnant to prevent her from giving birth to the future leader of the human resistance, John Connor. So, those are our three categories for Woodrow Wilson. What a dick, right? So be sure to leave a comment right away uh, down in this video, uh, and if you think that you know the correct answer, uh, which of these was a false historical fact? 
be the first person to give the right answer, uh, and you will get your comment pinned to the comment section uh, here over on YouTube. And you will also, of course, get your own copy of Weekend at Woody's, that hilarious buddy comedy all about the time that Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and his wife used him like a sock puppet to secretly run the entire country herself. I uh, heard you went to the, uh, went to the doctor and, uh, had a bit of bad news for you, is that right? Yeah! Turns out I have termites. <laughs> You're losing them, Well, boss. I hope you can still sing a song while I drink some water. Come on, man. Row, row, row your boat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, thank you so much for tuning in today. That is all I've got for you. Uh, my name has been Bob. Uh, this has been the Legalese Podcast. Uh, and until next time, Cartago de Lenda Est. <laughs>